0: Welcome to Higher Talk, a podcast about international relations theory and practice. I'm your host, Elon Kluger. Today, we are talking to Professor John D. Wilsey of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Professor Wilesy teaches and researches church history. He's the author or editor of four books, including One Nation Under God, an Evangelical Critique of Christian America, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Democracy in America, a New Abridgment for Students, and his most recent God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. and the subject of our conversation today. Professor Wilesy, welcome to our Talk. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So what initially drew you to John Foster Dulles? Well, I first encountered John
1: Foster Dulles as an undergraduate years ago when I was a history major at Furman University and was interested in him even as an undergraduate. But I really became interested in him when I wrote uh, my book on American exceptionalism. In that book, I wrote a chapter on the idea of America having a mission to fulfill in the world and how that idea, you know, evolved over time. And I used John Foster Dulles as something of a historical reference point for that idea. And so that was my first, you know, time really exploring Dulles's life in some detail. And a good friend of mine, Philip Luke Sinatier, he's a historian of African-American history. He read that chapter in manuscript form, and he suggested that I write a religious biography of Dulles. And I thought that was a good idea, so I did.
0: And so why does John Foster Dulles matter now?
1: Well, we live in the world that he created in many ways. You know, one of the things that historians do is study cause and effect relationships over the course of time. That's one of the things that makes history meaningful, makes the past meaningful for us. When we do history, we try to make sense of the past. And one of the ways we do that is to look at cause and effect relationships. So Dulles was very instrumental in, you know, getting the United States deeply involved, for example, in Southeast Asia in the 1950s. He died in 1959, but his, you know, his actions along with those of many, many others, set us on a, on a course to uh, be deeply engaged in Vietnam. And that's, that's definitely a world that you and I are living in today, and uh, we are still living with those consequences today. Another thing is that Dulles was probably most famous for a doctrine of diplomacy that he sort of championed in the 50s that was popularly known as massive retaliation. And that sounds like a, something of a, an ominous term, but it's really just deterrence. And that policy of deterrence, of course, was pursued by the Eisenhower administration during the fifties. It was carried out also by the Kennedy administration and, to some extent, the Johnson administration as well. And then it was renewed under the under Reagan in the nineteen eighties. So, the the policy of deterrence was was a very important one. And and Dulles is really one of the people who who, you know, developed that concept in a nuclear, nuclear diplomacy. So he, he, um, he's very important. He's very important for us, even though many people have not heard of him and not, not very many people know who he was in many ways, we're living in the world that he made.
0: So what has led to his sort of decline in stature. Another Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, I would say many more people know he is, and he could arguably have said he had much less of an impact just in terms of his lasting policies. So why has John Foster Dulles had such a decline in stature?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in consideration with Henry Kissinger, part of the reason is that he's still alive, (laughs) still with us. But with Dulles, uh, Dulles, died in May of 1959. In fact, yesterday was the anniversary of his death. Yesterday was the, I guess, what is it, the 72nd anniversary of his death. So when he died, this was right before you have several, you know, disasters that begin to sort of take shape uh, over time. For example, when he dies, Castro is just coming into power in Cuba, and it's not really clear to the State Department that Castro is going to ever be a real threat or present a real threat. Many Americans welcomed the rise of Castro in in 1959, and at the very minimum were cautiously optimistic. Eisenhower was someone who was rather rather cautiously optimistic. He also sort of blew him off. You know, he kind of famously uh, sort of blew him off, and. Um, and perhaps drove him into the arms of the Soviets at that point. But uh, Castro was probably already pretty, pretty friendly with the communists and socialism at the time. But all that to say that he died before you know, the real consequences of Castro's rise to power come, become obvious. His brother, Alan Dulles, was the head of the CIA, same time uh, Foster was leading the State Department. And Alan Dulles led the CIA through into the Kennedy administration. In fact it was the Bay of Pigs disaster that was the pretext for Kennedy removing Alan Dulles from that position. So that's that's one one thing. Also the failures in Southeast Asia, the failure of the United States to, you know, keep a South Vietnam free and also the disillusionment with the war during the 1960s led especially to Dulles's star falling. So Dulles represented something of pe- what something that people came to kind of resent by the time you got into the 70s. This idea that America is always right, that America, by virtue of its actions, is always right, that America is a sort of something of a pure defender of freedom in the world. All of those sort of things that many Americans, maybe most Americans, have taken for granted in the 40s and 50s were universally questioned almost by the time you got into the late 60s and early 70s. And since Dulles represented those older sort of optimistic views of the United States and the world, he was someone to, at first, sort of be reevaluated critically, and then later just, just forgotten.
0: So the subject of your biography is both the life and the faith of John Foster Dulles. So switching more to uh, that personal side of his life, why does it matter to study the personal life and the faith of statesmen?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, statesmen that, that are... In leadership now, the president, Congress, the cabinet, and so forth, we perceive them through the news as something almost like automatons. There it was an article today I just was reading on MSNBC, a very lengthy article about some of Biden's, you know, what Biden's d- ordinary days would be like, what he does in his schedule. You know, he uh, starts his day at nine o'clock in the morning. He starts off uh, with, some, with a weightlifting routine. And then he proceeds through his day and he finishes his day around seven o'clock when he goes up to the residence in the White House to have dinner with his wife. And that he's a night owl. You know, he stays up late and he, you know, re- does a lot of reading, he returns mail and that kind of stuff in the night. Now, nobody is really interested in my schedule. Nobody cares about my schedule, but we really care about the president's schedule. And part of the reason why that, that is, is because it humanizes him, right? When we see that, he, you know, he's bound by the same limitations as we are. He only has 24 hours in a day, just as we do. And he, you know, he, one of the things it said in the article, he has, he has this exercise routine, but he also loves chocolate chip cookies. He loves mint chocolate chip ice cream. I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. So when I read that, I can say, wow, I can sort of relate to him. He's a, he's a person, he's a human being. So religion, a person's religion, especially a, a famous person or a statesman, their religious beliefs are something that you and I as, you know, just ordinary people can really relate to. Even if we're not all that religious, it still is something of a humanizing aspect of a person that, you know, when you read in the history books about about Dulles, he does sort of come off as almost robotic, and a religious biography helps to humanize him.
0: So- Many of, certainly of contemporary American statesmen seem to be quite irreligious. There's Henry Kissinger has a quote that he loves to mention very often. He, it's from Pope Urban VII, who is supposed to have said that Cardinal de Richelieu uh, will have much to answer for when he's, when he's dead. If not, well, he had a successful life. So that's the idea is when he's dead, he, he got off scot-free or he did some very bad things. But now, and it, it sounds like Kissinger is sort of echoing that idea. With Dulles, it's very much seemed like religion was certainly a profound aspect of his life and certainly post 1937, which we'll get into. So is it still yeah. important to study the deeply irreligious people, or is it only the people like John Foster Dulles who were actually religious? No, I, I think it's really important to
1: study people who don't have, you know, a thoroughgoing religious life, also. Because, you know. When a person is not very religious, that also says something about their ethics and their uh, beliefs about metaphysics and their beliefs about knowledge. A person who doesn't uh, have a religious faith is, is actually saying something about religion and about eternal things and transcendent things. So again, these you know one thing that we all have in common, whether re- we are religious or not, is that we do, we do subscribe to a morality. And, you know, non-Christians, people who pursue other religions, and also non-Christians who are maybe agnostic or even atheistic. Most of us agree that stealing is wrong. Most of us agree that lying is wrong. Where do these things come from? So for those who are irreligious, you know, they, they might not think about the origins of those things very much. Or if they do, they might just consider those to be social constructs. But nevertheless, they still see them as very important. and they will probably be trying to orient their life around at least some of those moral commitments and convictions. That's another aspect of of humanizing people. It's it's something that we really can't get away from. It's part of who we are. And when when we explore those common traits that make us human, it's another thing that really helps us to understand better, helps us identify with, and brings relevance to the people who have gone before us. And one of the thing I try to say in the book is that with Dulles, because he has been so criticized and also forgotten over the space of the last seven decades, it's important to remember that Dulles was a human a human being. And when he dies, he doesn't lose his humanity. He's still human. And, you know, one day you and I will be dead. And how will people look back on our lives? How will our kids and grandkids uh, look back on us? And You know, I very much hope that they will look on us charitably. I wouldn't want my children and grandchildren to cover up things or not tell the truth about my life, but I would hope that they would read me charitably, and I hope that they would read me honestly. And as historians, that really is also our job, is to tell the truth, as much as it is within our power to tell the truth about people in the past
0: and their humanity. That's what I'm trying to do in this book. So in 1937, it seems that John Foster Dulles went through a profound switch when he attended a specific conference. So would you like to tell that story and then we could go further from there?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, he, he talks about it quite a bit during his lifetime. He, he wrote a little piece, a uh, little article shortly after the 1937 Oxford Ecumenical Conference where he said the title of this little article was I was a nominal Christian. Talked about how he grew up in a pastor's home, but then he was not very religious, you know, in the 1920s and first part of the 30s he didn't really think that that churches and the christian, christianity or christian people really had very much to offer to the very naughty complicated problems that the world was facing in the 1930s. The rise of totalitarianism and the looming threat of war that was, you know, shortly on the horizon and so forth and so on. So he, he really didn't think that the church had very much to offer. But he when he went to this conference in Oxford, England, he saw church leaders from all over the world, not just the West, but from places in Asia and Africa and Latin America as well, come to, come to Oxford for this conference to put aside their theological differences and, and seek agreement about how Christian churches would try to be part of the solution in the international problems facing the world in 1937. And this was something that kind of went against the grain of what Dulles had assumed for many years, kind of assumed that, well, Christians sort of internalized their faith. American Christians, especially, have become something somewhat selfish, somewhat soft, not, not you know, very optimistic about how the church might be engaged in international diplomacy. But that changed for him in 1937. He was he underwent something of another conversion in 1937, if you will. And from that point on, from 1937 all the way to the end of his life, he was convinced that the churches of the world were indispensable to peace and to the preservation of human freedom. And he dedicated his whole career, not only as a churchman, but also as a diplomat to that proposition.
0: So that idea goes into the classic dichotomy in international relations between ideas and mm. or material forces. Yeah. And the, yeah. the mainstream theory often has the idea that material capacity and power is much more important than the idea of Christianity and how the ideas implant in other people's minds. So does he disagree with that claim? And if so, how does that affect his diplomacy?
1: Yeah. Dulles would definitely have disagreed with that. I, I disagree with that. The material view of history is a Marxist view. And you know to lay aside Marxism is a very loaded, loaded word, of course. But in terms of a historiography, lay aside the political and social and economic considerations for a minute. As a historiography, as a method for reading history, Marxism is predicated on the idea that there are, there are only material forces at work. And uh, those material forces play out in terms of conflict between groups. Sometimes those groups are defined by economics. Sometimes they're defined by politics. Sometimes they're just defined by social realities. But this, but conflict is a kind of dominating theme and conflict in a material world. And really where there, there really is no consideration of, uh, of anything intellectual or anything material or anything spiritual that drives history along. And Dulles, of course, did not believe that. And I'm a a historian, I don't believe that either. Dulles, um, in his understanding of time, he was a progressive. He was someone who believed that we could move forward in time and the future held hope and promise for us. And so, again, as a historical method, a, a progressive reading of history is optimistic about the future. And he was optimistic. He was cautiously optimistic. There was something of a, of a tension in Dulles's uh, reading of history. At some points, you see him reading history as a story of decline, especially in terms of America. But he was very optimistic that America could arrest decline, and that decline was not inevitable that people could take hold of their spiritual heritage and that they could put the, put the nation on a course of, of, of progress towards human freedom. That's what he advocated for. Now, in terms of sort of broader and broader consideration of this, I, I think that ideas do shape history and that's part of the reason why I'm a historian is because I also think that moral wisdom can be gained from history. If history is, does not have any consideration for, for ideas as a driver of history, and it's, it's hard to know how you could ever glean kind of moral wisdom from the study of history. But I think when we look at history, we look at a life like Dulles's and not just Dulles, but really almost anybody. The point of doing this, the point of the exercise is not to as much to use history for our ends, but how can history change us? How can I look at Dulles's life? Like look at his failures, look at his blind spots. How can I learn something morally about his life and about my life? and about my family and my community. So Dulles, Dulles did not buy into the sort of a materialist view of history or a Marxist view of history. And uh, I don't either. And I think that that's important. It's an important consideration when you're when you're getting to know an author and how that author will approach uh, their their subject.
0: Going back to the earlier part of uh, Dulles' life, he attended Princeton and he studied under someone I think everyone will be familiar with, Woodrow Wilson. And then Wilsonian ideas, they seem to be sprinkled throughout his life. So what impacted that early encounter as well as future encounters at the uh, Versailles conference as well?
1: Yeah, great question. So Dulles had Woodrow Wilson as a professor. He Took him for a jurisprudence class, a very famous jurisprudence class that's still taught at Princeton today. And so I think that was his his junior year, I believe he he took uh, Wilson's jurisprudence class. So he had him as a professor because Wilson at the time was president of the university. But then Dulles would have further contact with him and dealings with him when he was president. So Dulles went to the Versailles Conference after World War I in Paris in 1919. He went with the American delegation to to Versailles, which, of course, Wilson personally headed up. And Dulles served on the Reparations Commission of the Versailles Conference. His brother, Alan, was there too. Alan actually served on the Boundaries Conference that redrew the map of Europe. So Alan Dulles was, was right uh, at the center of those conversations. But Foster Dulles was on the Reparations Commission, you know, deciding, you know, what kind of punitive reparations would the Allies require of the Germans. Dulles got to know Wilson pretty well in the months, for in the six months or so that they were there in Paris together in the beginning of 1919. And Wilson came to trust Dulles quite a bit and asked Dulles to, as a personal favor to him, to stay on in Paris for a few more months after he had already departed. And Dulles believed uh, very deeply that Wilson's vision in the 14 points and his vision in the League of Nations was, was the right vision for an international order that would maintain peace. But one thing that Dulles always said in the 1920s and 30s was it, it, you know, with, with the failure of the Versailles Conference, which, of course, everybody realized it was a failure, didn't take long to realize it was a failure. It, it took maybe into the 19, mid-1920s to realize that the Versailles Conference was a failure. It, it, it was obvious to everyone early on. And Dulles always used to say that the of the Versailles Conference was not a failure of Wilson's vision. He said, Wilson's vision did not fail. The problem with Wilson's vision was that it was never tried. So, you know, if you you know anything about the history of the Versailles Conference, you know that the British and the French, you know, they deep-sixed Wilson's, you know, very Pacific vision and a vision modeled on cooperation. And then, of course, the United States refused to join the League of Nations, which was a mortal blow to that organization. Mm -hmm. This is what he meant um, when he said that Wilson's vision was never tried. The British, the French, and the Americans, and all in their own way, undermined that vision so that by the time the Versailles Conference closed, really Wilson's vision for the end of the war did not transpire really at all. So when he is on the uh, commission for a just and durable peace in the 1940s during the Second World War, under the auspices of the Federal Council of Churches, one of Dulles' missions is that he wants to sort of reinvigorate uh, Wilson's vision for a post-war world order. He saw, for example, something of another chance to bring the uh, Wilson's vision into, into a post-war order. And uh, he sought to do that through the Council on, uh, or the Commission for a Just and Urban Peace. So that council crafted a statement called the Six Pillars of Peace in 1943, which established something of a moral vision for what later became the United Nations Charter in 1945. And that charter would be the inspiration also for the UN Declaration of Rights, which was made a reality in 1948. And Dulles was very instrumental in the crafting of both those documents. Of course, uh, the, the rise of the communist threat in the world put all of that in danger. And so another aspect of Wilsonian diplomacy that comes out in Dulles is statecraft is the idea that America was a Messianic nation. It had a particular mission in the world, and that mission was to extend and preserve freedom against the threat of a communist tyranny. And he was deeply engaged in that, of course, in the 1950s. So Wilson was deeply influential in him on Dulles in terms of two things. One, a post-war international order that would secure peace and freedom, but also an idea of America being an indispensable even a messianic nation
0: that was also going to champion peace and freedom in the world. So most of the critiques of the Versailles Treaty are not really related to the failure to uphold Wilson's vision, but rather the uh, very idea of balancing based on ideas rather than of power. In Dulce's view, he said, as one of a Habesian state of nature, which is very similar to the terms of the realist camp of international relations, which says that because there is no hierarchy in the international system, war is inevitable. So is this then that's the most common critique. EH Carr in the 20 Years Crisis critiques the Versailles Treaty as the failure to have recognize nations based on power rather than their idealism. And he, he uses Woodrow Wilson basically as a punching bag in that book. And Carr is a Marxist. historian. Yeah. <laughs> so no surprise there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, Dulles is is a is has a mixture of realism and progressivism in terms of his vision for diplomacy. He did believe that it had a very strong view of human sinfulness. Having been a Presbyterian and grown up as a Presbyterian minister's son, he had a very strong view of sinfulness. And he did believe that war was inevitable. In fact, he wrote a book in 1950 called War or Peace. And he opens the book by saying war is inevitable unless we take these actions to, you know, to, to help keep it from happening. So his view was that war was inevitable because people were selfish and nation states pursued their interests. So how do you create a world system in which nations sort of in their pursuit their, their pursuit of their interests, find it more in their self-interest to not go to war than to go to war. So in the same sense, like for example, Dulles was a great admirer of the, of the of the founders. He carried with him everywhere he went a copy of the Federalist Papers. He knew it backwards and forwards. And he, he sort of envisioned, especially in the 30s, he envisioned a world order that would be something like federalism, something like a federal union of nations, in which, you know, as you know, having read Federalist Papers, federalism seeks to channel these negative aspects of human nature, these tendencies towards power and these tendencies towards selfishness and direct them into a productive kind of a direction, right? So, you know, dividing up the government into three branches that were all going to be jealous of their own prerogatives, that would end up yielding, you know, productive a system of government that guarded power and that checked the power from being concentrated into one particular branch. Well, Dulles, some you know, he, he wanted to see an international organization that directed national interest more towards things that were productive and not towards war. If you, so, so his thesis was that peace has to be waged like war. You have to have constant vigilance. You have to have constant attention. You have to be flexible to be ready for change when it comes because change is inevitable. And if you are doing those things, then, you know, you're, you're, Chances for maintaining peace are much greater than if you just sort of think of peace as like a sort of a passive state of a lack of conflict. If, if that's going to be your position, then, then there's nothing, war will happen. That's how, that's how wars start, is when nations become complacent and when boundaries become inflexible and when nations seek only to pursue the status quo. Very ironically, that's how wars get started. So that's a great observation you have there. And yeah, it's, it's something that's uh, very pertinent to Dulles' statecraft.
0: So you talked about you first got interested in Dulles from you writing a book on the idea of American exceptionalism. And with declining religiosity within the US, would Dulles still view America as a Christian nation and worth defending as such?
1: I, I think so. You know, I'm a, I'm a historian, so I only think about people in the past that, and people who were dead. I can't, we can't bring him back, so I don't know what he would say. <clears throat> he would probably have a lot of ideas about our, our world. He would be pretty, pretty fascinated by, by what we're doing now on Zoom, sure. But given uh, the sweep and scope of Dulles's intellectual life, Dulles looks back to the founding all the time. He called upon, you know, America's sort of spiritual heritage all the time. And he was convinced that it was our tendency to uh, forget that heritage. And so I think that if Dulles were alive today, he would be saying many of the same things. I think that he would be warning us against forgetting our heritage, warning us against you know turning our back on our spiritual heritage. He did believe that America was founded as a Christian nation, but he didn't really have the same kind of view of Christian nationalism that a lot of people do today. You know, his view of of Christian nationhood was a more progressive view. His view of Christian nationalism was one that was oriented towards the future in that America was something like a beacon of light that was in some way going to foreshadow, you know, the in times, you know, the millennial reign of Christ. Dulles didn't believe that, you know, America was going to usher in the millennial reign. He didn't believe that America was a millennial nation like that, but, but his views about Christian nationhood were oriented towards progress in the future, that we were moving ahead, and America is at least part of the hope for the world. Christian nationalism today is very distinct from that. Christian nationalism today looks to the past, is a declension narrative. It's not oriented towards the future. It's oriented towards, you know, what we've lost and what we need to recover. And Dulles' Dulles's rhetoric is, there are elements of that, but, but what really marks him off is, is as a progressive. And so, you know, he, he, his brand of Christian nationalism is kind of a obsolete and outdated one. It's one from 19th century, early 20th century, but you don't really see it much now.
0: So going to how how studying changes oneself, in reading other biographies of Dulles that I did in preparation of this, a lot of them had a more negative view. And uh, Mm -hmm. one of them by Stephen Kinzer had Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles as a dual biography and made John Foster Dulles look like someone who is aloof and boring and staid and sort of Domineering, and Alan Dulles looked like uh, James Bond, basically. And it's it seemed like he was, and then reading this, it was just someone who was deeply religious, deeply devoted to his wife. And so, how do you think that that whole? How do you think you learn from studying someone like Dulles, but also reading reading what the actual truth is versus what other people say?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's what historians do. We 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 read people's mail. You know, people who are dead, we read their mail, we read their diaries, and we read their, the things that they've left behind. And it is, a, you know, it's a, a deeply humbling kind of an exercise. One of the first things I discovered when I started doing research in the Dulles Archive at Princeton University was, you know, I found his mother's baby book for him that she began, you know, keeping like an album right around the time he was born through his uh, fifth birthday. And, uh, you know, there's lots of things in the album. There's, you know, thoughts that she recorded about him, observations she wrote about him and stuff like that. And you would expect a lot of cards from relatives and that sort of thing, pictures, that kind of stuff. It's really interesting, but but I came across a page in that album that, that really deeply affected me and just sort of, I don't know, sort of set my attitude for the rest of the time, the rest of the whole year that I was there doing research in that archive. And on one of the, so on one of the pages in the album was an envelope. It wasn't sealed, but it's a little envelope. And in his mother's handwriting, it said a lock of Foster's hair at age three. And I opened up the little envelope and inside the, the envelope contained, you know, a lock of baby hair and it was blonde and it was tied up in a little ribbon. And I asked the archivist if I could take the hair out of, its, out of its envelope and just hold it in my hand. And, you know, she said I could. So with great care, I, I, I took the lock of hair out of the envelope and I just held it, held it in the palm of my hand. And the realization that I was holding a lock of hair that was, you know, almost 150 years old. It looked like it would have been it had been cut yesterday, and realizing that this is John Foster Dulles' hair from when he was three <laughs> was moving. It was a very moving experience. It was you know, it was an exhilarating experience as well, and it was all, all automatically something that humanized him. It was something that drove home to me the reality: this is a person I'm dealing with, a person who had a mother and a father that loved him, that had children that loved him, whose decisions and actions that he made in his lifetime you know had consequences and some of those were good some of those were bad and then you have everything in between just like me just like you so it struck me you know I I read Stephen Kinzer's book I think I probably read that book gosh probably three or four times all the way through during the course of my research on Dulles and I think Dulles I mean I think uh, Kinzer is, is an unbelievably good historian this is not a really a word of so I guess it's a word, a critical word, but it's not, a, it's not a word with a critical spirit, I guess. But I think that is one thing that, that Kenzer missed in his biography is he cast, I think he cast Dulles, Foster Dulles, as an automaton. And I don't think that he, I think he, I mean, he did, he was working in some of those same boxes in, in the archive that I was working in. but I think that Kenzer was intentionally writing a negative biography. So I think that he ignored some of those human qualities in Dulles because I think that he might have thought that that might have garnered sympathy from the reader. And that's, you know, as a word of critique, I guess I would say that that's not, that's what what I mean when I say it's the historian's job to tell the truth. And you know, every biography is going to leave out things. You know, if you leave things out in a biography, it doesn't, mean you're, it doesn't mean you're not telling the truth. I left out tons of stuff. I mean, this book is just a, it's, it's, it's really rather short. You could write a multi-volume treatment of this man's life, easy, easily. So you're always going to leave things out. And historian's hardest job is what are you going to leave mm-hmm. out? But when you portray the person, if you portray them in a way, that is, does not reflect the truth of the person as it's reflected in the primary sources. I think that's a problem. So I think that's one of the weaknesses of Kinzer's book. I think it has a lot of strengths, but I think, I do think that that's one of the weaknesses of the book. And it is one of the reasons why I wrote this book was because I wanted to see, I read that Kinzer book before I even considered writing a biography of Dallas. So in writing the book, I, I really
0: am in, in a way responding to Kinser. So how did writing a biography of this specific person change you? So when you look at other famous biographers, sometimes they write it with the intention of trying to mimic that person. So Louis Napoleon wrote a biography of Julius Caesar, right? That was sort of, and you could see the intention there, or Henry Cabot Lodge wrote on Alexander Hamilton and Daniel Webster. So I don't know if that's necessarily your intention, trying to be secretary of state, but how does writing a biography, how does that change you? That's a great question. You know, I think the most profound
1: truth that I thought about a lot, especially in reading his letters to his wife, looking at the pictures, and considering the sort of the broad sweep of the man's life. He was born in 1888. He died in 1959 at age 71. And I have in my possession, You know, I have access to all of this material from his birth until his death. And it gives me a sense of my own mortality. You know, there's a picture I'm thinking of a picture from his wedding. He got married in 1911 to Janet, his wife. And there is a photograph of what looks like to be like a dinner after like during the reception or something like that. It was like a dinner and it's, you know. Foster and Janet standing there and they're in their wedding outfit and uh, seated around them on around a table and then standing around, they're all posing for this this photograph, his family, his friends, her family, her friends, wedding party and all that. And you look into their faces and you look into their eyes. Picture was taken in 1911. Every single one of those people is dead. But in that moment, they're happy. They're celebrating a wedding they're excited about their lives but now they're all gone and one day that will be us one day all the pictures that you know in in my life me and my people and my friends and everything you know 50 60 100 years from now the person staring back in those pictures who is me today will be gone and so what what will i leave behind so it's a profound thing and it did it's something that stuck with me throughout my research of him but also since I wrote about them, thinking about my own mortality. i uh, close the book with a, something that the Romans were fond of doing. I'll just read you the last, the last line from the book here at the very end. In studying a past life like Foster's, we receive the gift of wisdom when considering our own lives. Let us pause long enough to remember that in so far as we are creatures of reflection, we have only the past, Richard Weaver wrote. The present is a line without width. The future only a screen in our minds on which we project combinations of memory," Weaver continued. Imagination enables us to know that people of past generations lived and had their being amid circumstances just as solid as those surrounding us, and piety accepts them, their words and their deeds as part of the total reality, not to be ignored in a summing up of experience. As we think upon the peoples of the past, let us remember the wisdom of the Latin funerary inscription, viator, viator, quod tu est ego fui; quo nunc sum et tu eris. And that is translated as traveler, traveler, what you are, I was, what I am now, you also will be.
0: And studying the lives of the dead reminds us of those things. So going to my closing question, which I ask all my guests, Robert Gilpin famously asked his students at Princeton. Do you think that current students of international relations and and historians and diplomats know more about international relations than Athenian students did during the time of the Peloponnesian War?
1: Yes, I think that that is the case because the proliferation of information and the access to information that we all have. That ordinary people like you and I have. I think during, during the time of, really during ancient period, the medieval period, the early, and the early modern period, information was something that was more for privileged people, people who were in position to wield power. And that is uh, less and less the case with, the, with advancing technology and, as I said, proliferation of information. So I think we're in a different position then, now than we've really ever been. Professor Wilesi, thank you for joining IR talk. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to be with you.